Romans 12.3, Paul says, For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then differing gifts according to the grace that's given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. And Father, we just bow our hearts before you now in this moment and just want to pray that you'd help us, Lord, to be attentive, to be able to be alert, to hear what your voice would want to say to us through this portion of your word that you've inspired and given to us for our learning and our instruction and our growth spiritually. So Lord, you know what that means for me and for each one of us. We pray you would tear down every high thing that would exalt itself against the knowledge of you being heard and learned for our life this day. We pray that you would remove the distractions from within us and among us and that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and our instructor, that you would give us understanding now and that you'd bless your word as we study it together. And we pray in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, what does God intend for you once you've come to that place where you're saved and you're following Jesus, you've had a conversion experience, you've come to that point in your life where recognizing you're a sinner and realizing that Jesus alone is God's Savior and therefore putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you have that salvation experience, you're born again, you make that commitment to Christ, you choose to follow Him as Lord and Savior. Well, once that happens, what does God intend for you from that point going forward? Well, one thing is for sure, and that this is that you're intended to be useful useful for God's purposes you're now following Jesus and certainly like Jesus when he was on earth the Bible says he went about doing good and Jesus used his life on this earth to function in a helpful way and that's what our passage is about instructing believers followers of Jesus which we now are once we're saved to basically be useful and to be effective for the Lord. Again, our background, we saw last week that as we come to Romans 12, we're now beginning a new section in the book of Romans, a section that becomes very practical where Paul now begins to instruct how the believer is to live out the Christian life. The first 11 chapters were about everything God has done for us in his plan of salvation. And now as Paul comes to chapter 12, he then says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, now you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord. He says, which that's your reasonable service. And he says, and don't allow yourself to be conformed to the pattern of the world that you live in. But instead, now that God's spirit's within you and working on you, he says, let yourself be transformed from within by the renewing of your mind so that you can test or prove out what is that good and pleasing and perfect will of God. And at this point, as we come to Romans 12 now, through the remainder of the book, it's now a call to live responsively to what God has done for us, how to walk worthy 
as a Christian and a follower of Jesus, how the believers to live out practically their life as a child of God. So Paul says Romans 1, uh, 12, 1 and 2 there, we're to first present ourselves to God to allow our life to be used by God to put it at his disposal. And when we do that, Paul says in verse 1 and 2, that we'll then begin to recognize what is the will of God for our life individually. We'll begin to become aware how God wants us to follow him in his will. And I can tell you this universally for all of us, God loves people. So because God loves people, one of the easiest and simplest ways that I can deduce God's will for my life is God wants me to serve him by serving people whom he's created and whom he loves. And this is where Paul now begins to go in this next section, saying if you present yourself to God, he'll use you, he'll identify what your role is and how you're supposed to be useful, how you're supposed to be effective as God works through you to function in a way that will benefit others. This is what Paul's addressing as we come now to verse 3, where he says, For I say to you through the grace given to me, to everyone who's among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Now take notice of this, verse 3. It's not by mistake. He begins a discussion now, scripturally, about being useful as a Christian with first and foremost giving an important warning, what? Not to fall into a trap of beginning to develop an overinflated view of our own importance. As he begins to talk about usefulness, he says, look, before we even talk about that, let's first talk about this because it's a dangerous thing that will make you unuseful very quickly from God's perspective. He says, be careful, be cautious that you don't allow yourself to get an overinflated view of your own importance. That's cru crucial if you want to be useful spiritually on the long term as God works in and through your life. Paul, though incredibly useful and effective himself spiritually, kept that in mind. You notice even in his own admission here in verse 3 as he's talking about this, he says, look, I'm only saying these things that I'm saying to you. He says, through the grace that's been given to me. Paul, you notice in his writings throughout the New Testament, often would wisely call this to mind to remind himself and I think to continuously put it in front of other people as well. 1 Corinthians 15, listen to what Paul says there in verse 9 and 10. He says of himself, For I am the least of the apostles. I'm not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Key verse. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. Again, if you put your notes, Ephesians 3, verse 7 and 8, you find a very similar statement again as Paul reiterates that to the believers there. Paul knew, as a fellow Christian, that every believer has the potential and the capacity to struggle with arrogance, to struggle with pride. It's often been said before that pride is like the mother of all other sins. Uh, and he knew that every believer has this capacity. That's why as he gives this instruction here in verse 3, not to think too highly of ourselves, you notice that he clearly says, look at it in the text there, verse 3, he says, I'm saying this to everyone who is among you. Paul says, look, this is a universal concern for all of us. It's not just certain people that tend to struggle with pride. 
Paul says, I'm saying this to everyone among you. Everybody must pay attention to what's being said. The reason is because we're all susceptible to this same struggle and sin. We all have the potential and the capacity for this failure. There's no one who's not vulnerable to this tendency. Now, we might manifest that pride differently depending upon your personality and your temperament or maybe what your role or function is but we're all at risk for this struggle that's why he says i'm saying this to everyone who is among you in fact remember even the disciples themselves who walked with jesus and ministered with jesus for three and a half years struggled in this area luke 22 says that a dispute arose among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest So imagine that, Peter and James and John, these men who walked right with Jesus and engaged in his ministry, they themselves, not only, it says, were thinking about, I I I certainly think I'm greater than Peter. Everybody's got to be greater than Peter. I mean, this guy's always going his foot. It doesn't say they just thought about it. It says they actually got into a dispute. They actually were verbally engaging and arguing over who was the greatest among them. I think it's a great reminder that none of us is immune. We have to be on guard as it pertains to serving God and being useful and effective. That's why he says, I'm saying this to everyone, to everyone that's among you. And what's the specific warning? Look at it again, verse 3, because it's important for all of us. He tells us not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. So he tells us what not to do as well as he tells us what we should do. First of all, what we should not do. We should not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. The Bible's saying don't ever begin to develop an exaggerated opinion of your own importance. He's saying be careful. Don't allow yourself to have an inflated view of yourself. Don't allow yourself to overestimate how much more special or valuable you seem or or you feel that you are in comparison to other Christians in the body of Christ where you become infected with the plague of a superiority complex. So he's saying be careful of this in our sinful weakness. The typical symptoms when this begins to happen to even a child of God among the church are obvious. There becomes an, an arrogance in someone's demeanor in the way that they're relating and interacting with people. Uh, There's a sense that they begin to feel that they deserve entitlements in certain ways and, and maybe they begin to behave and speak in ways where there's a sense it seems they're always advertising or promoting who they are or what they do or what their talent is. And, and these become symptomatic things of when we're beginning to think a little too highly of ourselves more than what we ought to. It's interesting, the original language here, the implication in the language is to overthink or to think above or beyond, listen, beyond what we should. Now that's key, just thinking beyond what we should. He's going to say it's, it's okay to have a sobered estimation of yourself. He's saying just don't think beyond what you should, an exaggerated view, thinking beyond and overthinking about yourself. Now let me say this. It is also very possible and important, I think, to think about that we can make the same mistake in the total opposite way. And here's what I mean by that. Whereby we begin to focus on ourselves beyond what we should and we overthink about ourselves too much in a self-deprecating way. Oh, I'm just, I'm not as talented as everybody else. 
I'm just, you know, I'm I'm just the spleen in the body of Christ. You know, I'm the, you know, I, I I'm the appendix, the one everybody's ready to just remove. They don't need it. You don't need it. Get rid of it. You know, I'm the toenail. I'm the toe jam. I'm the toe. F- I just nothing. I have nothing to offer. I'm so I'm so weak, and uh, I have all these issues from my past. And people can, in a self-deprecating way, beyond what they should, think a little too much of themselves. Where they're always worried what everybody's going to think about them. I've had a conversation with people on more than one occasion where I've said, look, people honestly aren't thinking about you as much as you're concerned. I wonder what they'll think. I wonder, look, really, you're not that important. They're really not worried about what you're doing. They're not paying attention, honestly. So we can, both sides of this, begin to become guilty of this. Listen, when we do that kind of a thing in a self-deprecating way, please hear me, that's not genuine humility. That's just a false version of a reverse version of pride in a backwards way, in a sense. It's a pseudo humility where basically you begin to crave just being complimented by other people and receiving their adoration. And and really, it becomes a way where you just begin to make excuses for yourself for embracing responsibility because you're a victim and you're so worthless and you have nothing to offer and it can be just as much a way of pride and arrogancy when you become chronically introspective and overly critical it's just another trap of pride so be careful of this because we can err to either side where we put too high of a focus and we overthink about ourselves too much notice he tells us That's what we shouldn't do, but what should we do? There it is in verse 3. He says what we should do is to think soberly. Just to think soberly about ourselves. Now, when a person is sober, we would say they're thinking properly. They have sound judgment. Think of it from the perspective of someone's drunk. If someone's drunk, usually when someone is intoxicated, their mental faculties are severely impaired. Their perception is off in the way they view things. There's a sense of kind of overconfidence that's not healthy. And sometimes, would you agree, people can become intoxicated with their own sense of self-importance. People can begin to become intoxicated with being perceived or treated as special or more important, either because you think you're so great or because you think you're so horrible. And again, on both sides of that, people can become intoxicated and drunk in a sense with all the special attention they receive because woe is me or wow is me. And people can almost begin to drink this in and the the constant adoration where it feeds their their self and there's something that drives within where they want to drink of that image of importance and the celebrity status and the entitlement and the monopolizing the human spotlight. And this can be a very dangerous thing. We all have to guard against it and be careful. Again, understand, it's not wrong. Please don't understand, misunderstand me. It's not wrong to have a sober, healthy judgment of yourself. That's what he's saying here. The point is, we just have to be balanced and have a tempered view from sincere humility, recognizing God has made you who you are. And he's made you the way you are purposely, by design, and he supplied you everything you have. And then he says, verse 3, that we should remember that God has then dealt to each one a measure of faith. In other words, God created you uniquely, he gifted you specifically and purposely, and then he gave you a measure or, or an amount of faith, and here's what for, to believe humbly who you are by God's design. 
and to accept that in humility. I am what I am by the grace of God. There's nothing special in me or I don't have to self-deprecate my... I just, I am who I am. This is who God made me. God created me this way with these desires or these gifts or this role or this capacity in order to humbly believe who you are and then to accept that and to act upon it. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 7, warning against this type of pride. He says, for who makes you differ from another? What do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you indeed received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? Paul then would say to the Corinthians in his second letter in chapter 3, talking about healthy balance, he says, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God who's made us sufficient as ministers. Again, we have no sufficiency, but we recognize that God can give us his sufficiency the way he's created us and empowered us, and we humbly, with the measure of faith we have, accept that, and in humility, genuine humility, just walk that out to function in the role that God intends for us. Paul goes on, verse 4, to say, For as we have many members in one body, but all the members don't have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So here again, we see this multiple times. The Bible pictures, notice, Christians, believers, like a body with many different parts functioning in an interdependent way in order to stay healthy. He says here in verse 4, kind of consider the human body, Paul says, just like a body has many members in one body, but they all don't have the same function. That's an illustration. In a healthy human body, there are different types of parts and organs, and that's by purposeful design. There's a purposeful existence of five fingers on each hand and there's a purposeful existence of eyes and ears and a mouth and a heart and lungs and a spleen and appendix and, and it all, it's all there by design and it all has its intended function and it's there to all be a part of one unified body that interdependently in harmony works together for health and development and growth and every body part therefore has a twofold responsibility and that is one, to receive from the rest of the body what it needs for life and also to contribute its specific function to contribute to the overall function of the body. He says, but all the members don't have the same function. Again, my eye doesn't have the same function as my ear, but both are necessary. But they have their specific function, they're significant, and the rest of the body depends upon that specific function. Well, Paul says that's an illustration, verse 5, how we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So the Bible calls the church, collectively, Christians, the body of Christ. And it teaches that Jesus is the head from where all of the direction comes for the operation in a healthy, uh, you know, harmonious way for the rest of the body to receive guidance and how it's to function interdependently. And believers are the individual parts and members that make up this thing called the living body of Christ where now the life of Jesus is manifested on this earth through the body of Christ, which are now God's people intended to be operating in harmony. He says there, verse 5, that we're individually members of one another. So we're interconnected. 
Christians are supposed to be dependent upon one another for life and health and growth and usefulness. Please hear this. The Christian life is intended to be lived in connection to and cooperation with other Christians. The Bible knows nothing of Christian isolation, of Christian independence. I love Jesus, but I just don't like the church. Listen, that, that, I'm sorry if you've developed a perception, but that's a really not healthy place to be. The church is the bride of Christ. So it's like telling Jesus, look, I love you, I hate your wife though. Gosh, I can't stand her. I don't know if that's a good idea. We are intended by design for a healthy Christian experience to be interdependent. Again, think of a body, if I can put this perspective in your mind, okay? I have a, I have a brother-in-law who experienced a traumatic uh, uh, industrial accident and he is now a double amputee. He lost both arms all the way up to the shoulder. He's still living, but he lost both arms all the way up to the shoulder. But listen, we call that handicapped, disabled. So listen, when we think that we don't need to be connected to the body of Christ, there's a part of that we're disabling the church. We're handicapping the body of Christ because we're not contributing our function, our role by God's design where God wants to use us to help the rest of the body be a healthy, sound, functioning body. And any body part that becomes disconnected from the rest of the body, guess what? I'm not trying to be morbid. His arms aren't still alive because they were disconnected from his body. And when you disconnect from the body of Christ as a Christian, I assure you, you will struggle. You will struggle severely and you will shrivel up and die ultimately if you continue to stay disconnected. We need to be connected to the body of Christ just like a human body. We don't all have the same part and function, but we do have a dual responsibility. We're to be receiving from other Christians what we need by our interconnection and we're to be contributing the way God wants us to impart that significant thing that he wants to do through your life to use you. 1 Corinthians 12 is a whole chapter where Paul says how we can't say we don't need each other and Ephesians 4 verses 11 to 16 there Paul talks about how as each part does its share that's what causes growth and health for the spiritual body of Christ. Paul goes on verse 6 saying having then differing gifts according to the grace that's given to us let us use them. So in light of this Paul gives some explanation how we should each notice be connected to the church body and serving within. Here's one of a few places we find in the Bible that tells us that each believer, every Christian, has a spiritual gift or gifts that we are to exercise to help serve and benefit other people. Other passages we find the teaching about gifts of Christians, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter chapter 4. Notice here in verse 6, Paul tells us regarding our giftedness that these gifts are according to verse 6, the grace that is given to us. Now important to notice, according to the grace that's given to us. Here's what the Bible's teaching us in relation to spiritual gifts whenever we see it, that these are not natural talents. These are not capacities of a natural born person and human abilities that we possess. Now hear me, certainly, I think God can anoint and bless natural talents. I think that if God's created us 
from birth with certain capacities and, you know, and, and, and potential to do certain things and talents that if we present those things to God and we present our whole body to God, I think God can anoint natural talents and use them supernaturally. But when the Bible speaks of spiritual gifts, it's talking about supernatural enablements. Something that God does in our life as the result of us now being a child of God. There's a divine empowerment from the Spirit of God where God's determined our role or our function in the body of Christ. And then he gives us a desire to will and to act according to his good pleasure. And then he empowers us with his Spirit to serve in that function and that role that God's intended to use us in for that capacity. And these gifts, notice he says, verse 6, will differ according to the grace that is given to us. According to the grace that's given to us, there'll be differences. So you're not going to have the same function as everyone else. You're not going to have the same gifting or, or way that God uses you. The reason is, guess why? There are various needs. There's a lot of diverse needs in a church, in the world. So therefore, there is diversity amidst the unity of how God works in the body of Christ. And our function is going to be uniquely different by purposeful design. Even so far that 1 Corinthians 12 says, and we see this, do we not, among Christianity, sometimes people who have the exact same gift as you won't even function in the exact same way that you do in that gift. Because they're uniquely gifted to operate maybe in the same gift, but with the temperament or personality or the style or the way that God wants to use them as they operate in that gift. And guess what? We need that too. We need diversity in Bible teachers and diversity in worship leaders and diversity in people who say, I have a gift to give. Mine is in this way. Another person says, I have a gift to give. My, my gift is in this way. And the way that God uses you and you operate may have distinctions and that's a good thing because then all the bases are covered. And then there's a beautiful harmony of what the need is in the given situation that it brings to the body of Christ or serves the world the way that it does. Our job is to discover our spiritual gifting, hear me, that has been given to us. What has the grace that God has given been given to you? He's given you a special measure of grace to operate humbly and effectively and responsibly in the way he wants to use you so that you'll become a productive Christian. Listen to what Peter says, 1 Peter 4, verse 10 and 11. He says, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified. So here in Romans 12, like other passages, we get a small sampling, it's not an exhaustive list, of some of these gifts of grace that are given to believers to be useful for God's work. Look with me in verse 6. He begins to mention some of them. Firstly, he mentions the gift of prophecy by saying, if prophecy, let us proportion or prophesy, excuse me, in proportion to our faith. Prophecy is basically divinely inspired speech. It's speaking forth the word of God. It's when God wants to say something to a group of people or to an individual person, a timely word in season, and he puts that word upon the heart and mind of one of his children to speak forth on his behalf, to declare verbally what God wants to say on this earth. 
I think a great description, second, uh, Samuel 23, verse 2, David said, The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. I think David's saying, look, that wasn't my word. It wasn't my idea. The Spirit of God put his word on my mind, on my heart, on my tongue, and I just spoke forth what God wanted to say. I was just used as a vessel, a conduit to speak forth what God wanted to say in a given situation. Again, when we hear prophecy, please remember, it doesn't always have to be predictive. It may be predictive because God lives outside of the time continuum so he can speak of things that are going to happen next year prophetically, but it's not limited to just predicting the future. It can be a timely word and season. Uh, I think this is an interesting illustration I heard before. It's when a person becomes a human megaphone to amplify clearly and directly what God wants to be said. You ever see those bullhorns, people, you got a large crowd, so in order to make sure everybody can hear clearly, you, you use a bullhorn or a microphone and, and so that it amplifies clearly so everybody can hear. Well, when you, when you are used by God prophetically, that's what it is. God says, I'm going to use a human microphone to make sure it's clearly stated what I want to say to this person prophetically or what I want to say to a group of people. You find a definition of prophecy Biblically, in 1 Corinthians 14.3, it says, He who prophesies speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort to men. So when somebody speaks a word of prophecy, that's what will happen. There'll be someone who speaks a word to build people up, to encourage them, or to exhort them, to challenge them, to obey God, or to bring comfort. Sometimes it's a timely, comforting word. A strong impression comes on your heart and God wants to use you to say something to someone in a given situation. And he says, if you're someone who God uses to prophesy, then he says, verse uh, 6 there, then prophesy in proportion, he says, to our faith. So he's saying, if the Lord uses you this way, then when you have the, the faith, that God's putting something on your heart to say, then move in it. When you have the faith that the Lord's putting that strong impression on your heart that he wants to use you to say something, yet, let me say this, be careful not to force this at the same time. You do it in proportion to your faith, which means this. It means that we have to be careful that this is a way God uses you as a Christian to not think that you always have God's pulse on everything. Or you're now God's appointed messenger because he uses you to prophesy once in a while. So you have the pulse on every matter and so you're always going to speak the corrective word or the timely Be careful in proportion to your faith. If God gives you the faith to say something, go with it and don't be afraid. But if he hasn't, then be careful and be cautious in relation to that. Secondly, he mentions another gift there in verse 7. He says, or ministry. Let us use it in our ministering. So this speaks of practical service. It's where we get the word deacon in the New Testament. Those who do practical, material things to help care for the physical needs, which are a part of spiritual life. This is the person who has a gifting where they're inclined towards servanthood. They just tend to see needs that exist in the church or in a situation that require physical labor or manual work and they just have a tendency to be inclined towards doing those things. You know, some people enjoy donating their time and energy and skills to help and serve and some people, honestly, they just love to serve in practical, hands-on ways and they're good at it and I think that's a key if they have the gift of ministering. They love to do hands-on things and they're good at what they do. So 
again, the person who has the gift of ministry or, or helps, you know, they, they enjoy paying attention to, hey, the facility needs to be clean. And, and there's a mess here that needs to be cleaned up or cans that need to be dumped. Things need to be orderly. Or they have an inclination and an aptitude for fixing things and repairing things. Again, whether in the church or maybe helping people out in their homes or helping set up and tear down before events or preparing things to have them ready so that when God's people come, they feel cared for and catered to. They're comfortable. You know, These are the people who want to do practical, tangible things. They're concerned about the worship environment. Hey, are, are the chairs straightened? You know, Is, is the, the room temperature... In, a, in an acceptable way so some people aren't freezing or other people aren't passing out asleep because it's too, they, they pay attention to those things. The tangible, physical aspects of ministry, those who have this gifting, oftentimes just have an aptitude and an inclination to serve in this way. And I find those who serve in this way, they usually don't even need to be told what to do. They just see it, they perceive it, and when they see the need, they tend to address it. And even if they are directly asked to do something or if a need is somehow indicated, they jump right to it and are ready to put their hand involved because they see and understand how practical needs contribute to the spiritual work and ministry that happens as well and how these two things work hand in hand as God is at work. They often operate quietly and behind the scenes. They don't draw attention to themselves. They arrive early. They stay late. These are people with the gift of ministry. Hey, let me say this just as a realistic illustration. Have you ever gone before to a public restroom and there's no option? You're not going to wait till you get home to your personal restroom. You got to use that public restroom. And then you go to use that public restroom and it is disgusting. Disgusting. I had three daughters. Or you got to take your little kiddo in there. And that restroom is disgusting. Listen. You ever wonder how the bathrooms in the church get cleaned here? So that you don't say, I can't believe this is disgusting. This church, but this is disgusting. You ever wonder how those bathrooms aren't disgusting? Because some people have the gift of ministry. And they're operating in it. Praise the Lord, right? We don't see him do it, but it's a gifting. It's a ministry. And so he says, for those who have this gifting in ministry, use it in your ministering. It's nonetheless of standing behind a pulpit or teaching children. He says, use it in your ministering. Be faithful. Be functional in this way because it contributes to the overall work of God. Verse 7, he goes on to say, he who teaches in teaching. So here we have a reference to the spiritual gift of teaching which I think the gift of teaching can be defined as sort of that supernatural, again, spiritual grace or enablement from the Lord to be able to study a portion of God's scripture and then explain its truths and apply its message to people that God wants to help understand and be able to grasp and learn his word. So the gift of teaching is when someone systematically instructs God's people, they interpret and they explain God's truth from the scriptures and they possess a supernatural ability to decipher and to discern God's truths personally and then to organize and describe those truths to others as they speak them forth in communication, resulting in people then having a clear understanding of God's word and God's will. This is the gift of teaching. It keeps people attentive. Certainly, if you have the gift, it should. It, well, I shouldn't say that. It's like self-indicting there. <laughs> it 
And it should be communicated in a way, listen, where when people leave at the end of a teaching, they've received helpful insight and there's been development and they've had more questions answered than that arise now in their mind. They walk away and say, oh, okay, I, 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 I grasp that passage more now. I see how that applies to my life. I understand the heart, the intent, the content. Yeah, I, I grasp that now. And I can take that and, and try and obey that because they've been instructed. I think a, a spiritual teacher functions like, uh, again, uh, someone who is like a spiritual coach or a trainer. They're developing the athletes. They're helping instruct them and train them to help them to be successful in what they do. It's like a sergeant preparing the troops for battle, equipping the saints for their works of ministry and the ways that God wants to use them, feeding them a healthy diet. Somebody who can has, have a desire and they have a gift to, to study God's word. They receive instructions and ideas from the Lord. And then they also have the anointing from God to then articulate what the Lord has shown them and to speak those things forth because of what they've received in preparation and also then the momentary inspiration that even as they're communicating is God then gives to them because of that spiritual anointing those words that come forth that help instruct people. Paul said, that which I received from the Lord, I delivered to you. I think another great description of Bible teaching is found in this verse, Nehemiah 8.8. Let me read it to you. He says, they read distinctly from the book in the law of God. They gave the sense and they helped them to understand the reading. That's teaching. That's spiritual teaching. And let me say this. The gift of teaching is not limited to just pulpit ministry. I hope that people have the gift of teaching that are over there teaching our children this morning. Because that's teaching. I hope if somebody's going to spend time and teach our teenagers that they have a spiritual gift to teach the Word of God. For those who have women's Bible studies, the, the gift of teaching can operate as a woman is, is teaching privately or collectively another group of... The gift of teaching is not just limited to what happens in the pulpit, but it indeed is It's a spiritual gift. It's a gift that God gives to some who should operate it if they have in it. And I also think, and if you don't, you should be honest to accept and don't strive to be a teacher. If that's not your gift, then pull back from that and let those who God's called do it function in that way fruitfully. He goes on verse 7, or excuse me, verse 8 to say, and he who exhorts in exhortation. Now to exhort is a word means to strongly urge into action, to encourage response or press for obedience. Here's the best way I can help you understand exhortation. It's putting into action the things that we know we should be doing because somebody challenges us to step forward and to get moving. The teacher explains what to do or instructs how to do something. The person with exhortation says, comes alongside and says, now what are you standing around for? Get going. Obey. Get moving. Be responsive. An exhortation is somebody who, that's what I can illustrate, they're the person who has a spiritual anointing from the Lord to give people a kick in the pants. That we all need sometimes, right? Because as a Christian, sometimes I know what to do. I've learned it or I know what God's will is, but I'm kind of just sitting back and, and I'm not moving forward. Maybe again because it's of doubt or maybe somebody's discouraged or depressed or maybe they're lacking faith or maybe they're afraid to take the step that God's calling them to take or maybe they're just giving up too easy on the temptation of sin. 
Or maybe they're struggling and, and, and wrestling with some hard situation. Or they're just procrastinating from obeying God. This is where the gift of exhortation comes along. And the person with the gift of exhortation comes along and says, Look, what are you doing? You don't need more information. You need to obey the Lord. And they just have this sense from the Lord and a spiritual love but yet firmness to just challenge people, to press them into action and obedience, a wonderful gift to challenge us and motivate us to stir and obey what God has already shown us. He then goes on in the list to say, and he who gives with liberality. So there's a spiritual gift of giving. Again, the Bible teaches every believer, every Christian, the Bible teaches should give with regularity and proportionally, yet beyond that, there is a spiritual gift of giving, the Bible teaches. An actual gifting from the Lord where the Holy Spirit gives certain people unique desire and enjoyment as it pertains to giving to other people, to helping meet needs. Some people, I truly believe, have a supernatural ability from God to generate money, and, and to then, beyond generating money and be blessed, to maintain a proper perspective of why God's blessed them and why they're able to generate the resources they have to have excess to say, God, this is a tool. And how can I use this as a tool? How can I use this to help some family in need or to you know, further some missionary's work or support some work of God in some way? And they understand why God's blessed them with the excess and they actually enjoy using it to meet needs, to support missionaries, to you know, help ministries, to, to, to find situations where they can use that money as a tool to meet some work that God is wanting to do as they use them as a vessel. And he says, if you have this gift, a gift of giving, he says, exercise it, notice, with liberality. The idea of the word liberality there literally means to be open-handed or freely. Some translations render that word sincerity or generosity. I think the Bible's saying to this, if this is your gift, then give in such a way where there's no strings attached. Be careful. Because if you're a giver, you've got to be careful that you don't begin to give and, and start to attach strings emotionally. No, just, just open-handed. I, I just want to give. No strings attached. No pressure, no obligation, no control. I, I just want to be generous and I want to be helpful. And the idea is don't be close-handed, be open-handed. And why is that important for a giver? Because people who have a gift of giving get burnt sometimes. And then when they get burnt with that gift of giving, they say, that's it, I'm done this giving thing. Because that person, when I help, well, but, but when I help that person, they, they, they just, they took advantage of me. And there's a tendency, oh, I'm not, I'm not giving. And God says, no, 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 keep your hand open. It all belongs to me anyway, right? Just keep it open. Don't allow that depression or frustration or a bad experience to make you hold back. He goes on next in our list to say, and he who leads with diligence. So here's the gift spiritually of leadership. And when you look at the term there, it speaks of one who stands before others to guide and direct. This is a God-given or supernatural ability from the Lord to exercise oversight. Somebody who's able to provide guidance and direction to people, and hear me, to do it effectively. To do it effectively. Look, whether most people want to agree with it or accept it, the truth be told, people need to be led. We're sheep, the Bible says. People need guidance. They need direction. And without leaders, there's never going to be progress in anything in the world, let alone in the church as well. 
People are never going to get things done. They're not going to get things accomplished. Without leaders, people become disorderly and they just all do what they prefer. This is why God's established a gift of leadership, a gift of governments, both civilly and spiritually. Because the leader can come along and say, hey, listen, okay, we can value, size up the situation here. How about you do that? And how about you work on this? And you three take care of that. And, and we'll do this and we'll meet back. At the, and, 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 and they help things get done. They help things move forward. They don't just project vision of what needs to be done. They also know how to lead and guide people to get from point A to point B and they do it effectively. They do it effectively. They know how to manage a position of oversight and operate in authority and they have ability to direct people. They have the ability to make good decisions about what needs to be decided and to help guide people and give direction to get things done in a way that is humble and I think that also then merits the respect and the following of other people. You want to know the greatest ways to find out if God's called you to be a leader? See if anybody follows. I wonder if God's called me to lead. Is there anybody following you? So again, we all should be good examples and be good leaders, but you find that some who have the gifting from God for leadership, people follow them. They follow their direction. They cooperate with their guidance. And he says, if you do this, if you lead, he says, lead with diligence. Now, why does he say that lead with diligence? Because leadership is a great responsibility to be entrusted with the guidance of other people. That's a huge responsibility. So he says, if you're going to lead, don't be careless in that. You be diligent, be dedicated. And sometimes leadership can get discouraging, right? Because even if you're a leader, Sometimes it's very discouraging when you're trying to lead people and it, it's not seeming to, to go as maybe as quickly or the way you... So he says, don't, don't become discouraged. You be diligent. Keep leading in that place of business. Keep leading in that role of ministry. Keep leading in that place where God's given you a role of... Keep leading. Be diligent about it. Stay faithful. Stay committed. Lastly, he mentions a final gift here in verse 8 saying, and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. So the gift of mercy is a supernatural ability, I think, to have sort of special compassion on people who are struggling and a unique ability to aid and relieve those who are in distress. What's mercy? Mercy is not getting what you deserve. And see, sometimes people are having a relational problem or maybe they failed spiritually or maybe they're struggling with sickness or they're having a personal crisis and the person with the gift of mercy is someone who sees people hurting in distress and they are just moved with an extra measure of compassion. It just, it breaks their heart. These, I believe we could call, these are spirit anointed comforters who just, they want to give everybody a second chance, third chance, fifth, and they just, they have a real merciful spirit. Their heart is very tender and compassionate and when they see people hurting, they have a special kindness they have a very tender spirit that's concerned with people who are struggling because they failed in sin or they're going through a hard time and they're very gentle and tender and, and they exercise that gift of mercy. Listen, this is important. This is valuable. Oh, I'm not a very good teacher. I'm not really good at leading people. But listen, when somebody's struggling, can you come alongside somebody and put your arm around them and have a way of just nursing them back to health? And look, that's, that's the gift of mercy where you see that hurting, struggling person and you want to relieve that. And he says, if you have this gift, then do it cheerfully. The idea is, is do it with a spirit that is joyful, that encourages them to be optimistic, that they can see the brighter outlook as you function in that way. Hey, this morning, 
simple question. Are you allowing your life to be useful for the Lord? If you are, listen, your labor is not in vain. Keep at it. Be faithful. If you're going to serve, we need faithful servants of God. One of the things that grieves my heart as a leader more than anything else is when I see people say that they'll minister in a capacity and then they don't show up or they show up late or they give very little attention. I think if you functioned at your job like that, wonder how long you'd have your job. Listen, isn't God's work worthy of just as much effort and commitment and faithfulness as our vocation? Certainly it is. Be faithful. Keep going. Serve the Lord. And if you're here this morning and you're not engaged, you're not being useful, you're neglecting a whole part of your Christian life. God wants to use you. Don't handicap the body of Christ. You have something significant to contribute that would be helpful to the body of Christ. Amen? Let's stand together.